You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Now with your Bibles open to John chapter 10, please turn to John chapter 10. All right, when you found your place there, let's bow our heads together and let's pray before we begin our study. Our gracious and loving God, we are thankful that you have given us your word to to give us insight and illumination on things which we would never be able in the depths of our own minds to comprehend. We thank you that you have revealed truth to us. You have made it clear enough for us to understand. And now as we give our hearts and our minds attention to some very, very complicated and very deep and profound doctrines, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that your spirit would be our guide, and that it is your word that would be our concern, and your word would be the rule by which we judge all things. Help us to see in Scripture what it says about the salvation that we have been given in Christ, that you might be honored and glorified by us as we obey your word and obediently proclaim your word as it should be proclaimed. We ask your blessing on this time. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen. Well, as I promised you last week, we're going to be answering a question that kind of comes up as we're working our way through John chapter 10. And had I had the opportunity to preach for an hour and a half last week, which I didn't, then this is what we would have dived into had we been, had that time. But we saved this for today, and you'll, you'll see in your bulletin that the, the, message of the, the, the message title is supposed to be the Sacrificial Servant Part 2. Part 2 will be next week. We are answering today, really, what is the extent and effect of the atonement that Christ offered? What is the effect and the extent? What is the scope and effectiveness of the death that Jesus died on the cross? And we want to answer that because we are confronted with sacrificial language in John chapter 10. We read in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And five times in verses 11 through verse 18, we have this phrase, I lay down my life. I lay down my life that I may take it again. I lay it down on my own accord. The Father has given me permission or authority to lay it down and to take it up again. This is Jesus saying repeatedly that the offering that he was giving was a voluntary offering. He was going to sacrifice himself. And we have in John chapter 10, in this very analogy, an explanation as to the scope or the people for whom this sacrifice was made, namely the sheep. And so we want to ask the question, For whom did Christ die? Now that may seem to some of you like really not that much of an important question. This is really, doesn't matter who he died for. It is actually a very significant question. And if you're familiar with church history, then you know that it is a question that has been kicked around, not since the Reformation, but since long before the Reformation, going all the way back to the early church, the discussion about this question, for whom did Christ die? In other words, did he die for all men? equally, or did he do something special for his sheep that he did not do for all men? What was the scope and what was the effectiveness of the sacrifice that Christ offered? That's the question that we're going to be looking at. Now, I would venture to guess that if you were to pick at random out of the United States, just pick a state at random, go to that state, pick a city at random, go to that city, pick a church at random, go into that church on any given Sunday out of the course of the whole year, and walk up to anybody randomly and pull them out and ask them this question, who did Jesus die for? 
or more properly, grammatically, for whom did Christ die? You would probably get this answer. Well, Jesus died for everyone. Did he? What does Scripture say about the extent and the effectiveness of what Christ did? That's the question we're going to be answering. Now, I think that that answer that you would get from your average church attender and an average church on an average Sunday, I think you get that that question answered that way for a couple of different reasons. First, it is really that answer is really the fruit of probably three generations of Christian preaching that comes out of the Second Great Awakening and a theology that was birthed around the time of the Second Great Awakening. It, it is a Christianity and a, theo, a Christianity and a, a church really that is weak in theology insipid in its theology and and minimizes and dumbs down theology. And now we have basically three generations of Christians and churches who have been started and grown up and raised on this theology that comes out of the Second Great Awakening. The theology being this, that Jesus has done for everybody who has ever lived everything necessary to save them. And now Christ comes to humanity with hat in hand and says, please accept me. Invite me into your heart. Acknowledge what I did for you. And if you will acknowledge what I did for you, then what I did for you will not be in vain. It will not be wasted. That's the theology of the Second Great Awakening. That's why you have emotional appeals to people. Get them to make a decision. Leverage them into the kingdom using emotion. And if you can do that, if you can get them to make that decision and do something, then the work that Christ did will be credited to their account or made effective on their behalf. A second reason that that would be a kind of a standard uh, response in today's church is because I ha- we all of us have this to some extent, but most people, I should say all of us, all of us have this to some extent, what we would call chicken coop theology. And I've described this before, chicken coop theology. In a chicken coop, you have little compartments where each end has their nest. We have chicken coop theology. We have a theology of the atonement here, and we have a theology of God's sovereignty down here. We have a theology of hell here, and a theology of justice, and a theology of Christ's work on the cross, and a theology of who Jesus is, and a theology of God's omniscience. And as long as those chickens are never allowed to come out and socialize with each other, we have this amazing capacity to believe a hundred contradictory things all at the same time. Because we never get our theology of justice to come out and associate with our theology of the atonement. Or our theology of the atonement to come out and associate with our theology of substitution and imputation, and righteousness, and justification by faith. But if we force all of our chickens to come out at the same time and socialize with each other, sometimes we can say, you know what, these two things really don't match up. And if you think that people don't have the capacity to believe a hundred contradictory things at the same time, just go out on the street and start asking them questions about their positions on different things. And pretty soon you will, be, you will see that they believe a hundred contradictory things all at the same time. We have chicken coop theology. I think all of us are subject to that in some sense. So today what we want to do is force all the chickens out of their compartments to come out, and we want to look at the death of Christ from the big picture perspective, as it were, and ask ourselves, for whom did Christ die? What, if anything, did he actually do on the cross? Now let me give you a couple of considerations before we begin quickly. First, this could take weeks for us to go through. I am going through this in one Sunday. This could take weeks for this reason. Listen. All of the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament lays the foundation for, points toward, typifies, expects, anticipate, prophesies, sings about, demands the, the redemption of Christ on the cross, his sacrifice on the cross. All of the Old Testament prepares for that event. All of the New Testament records that event and explains the implications of it and the application of it. So we can rightly say that the death of Christ on the cross is the central event 
in the redemptive plan of God. Everything that he was doing from creation was driving toward that event. And everything that he has done since then has been the application or the explanation of that event. So there are literally in Scripture hundreds of passages that could be brought to bear upon this subject. And I say this for this reason, so because I know that you, like me, would hear a sermon like this and you would say, okay, hold on, I have a, I have a passage that Jim forgot to mention. Listen, I'm going to forget to mention hundreds of passages this morning. Now, I welcome your feedback and your comments, but I just want to make you aware that I am aware that there is a lot that I cannot cover. Old Testament stuff anticipating it, New Testament stuff explaining it. You might have a passage or something you think has bearing upon this. I, I welcome that feedback, that encouragement or, or rebuke or reproof or whatever you think is necessary. But we are not going to be able to systematically cover absolutely everything. I'm aware of that. I'll do my best to cover as much as I can. Second consideration. This is what we're about to talk about is what we would call top shelf doctrine. It's top shelf doctrine. This is not stuff that you talk about with the five-year-olds in Sunday school. Now, it's okay to start explaining this, but really this is, this is in-house discussion for Christians who are familiar with what Christ did. This is top shelf Christianity. And, and I say that not because I don't think that you are up to it. I actually, unlike most pastors in evangelicalism today, I actually come here expecting that you are coming here to think. And you are coming here to worship God with your heart and with your mind and to engage the text and to draw meaning out of it. But this doctrine is, this is top shelf stuff. So we are going to jump into some pretty profound waters, but I believe that you and I will enjoy the swim. So now let's jump into some pretty profound waters. For whom did Christ die? Before we can answer that question, you know how I do this, we have to answer one other question. And the question that we have to answer before the second question, the first question, is this. What, if anything, did Christ actually do on the cross? What, if anything, did he actually do on the cross? How does Scripture describe the death that he died? And I don't mean the the details of it, the nails in the hands, nails in the feet. No, no. What was actually going on there? What did Christ do on the cross? Well, you say he died. We understand he died. We can all agree on that. But what was happening there? What if, act, what if anything did he actually accomplish on the cross? Did he accomplish something? Or did he try to do something and largely fail? Well, we're going to see today that, and I'm just going to give you four things, that the death on Christ, the death of Christ on the cross was four things. You'll follow these four things. First, it was a substitution. The death that he died was a substitutionary death. As scripture uses all kinds of language to describe this, he died in the place of, he died instead of, he died for, he died on behalf of. That's the type of language that Scripture uses. I'll give you a few passages. First Peter chapter 2, verse 22 and 24. Who, that is Jesus, committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. He bore our sin in His own body on the cross. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. That's the language of substitution. One man dying in the place of, as a substitute for, other men. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, 
so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Second Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the great exchange, the imputation over which all of scripture is written. That there was one man who was made sin on behalf of us so that we might gain the righteousness that was his. I trade my sin for his righteousness. He takes my sin. I get his righteousness. That's what happened on the cross. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're familiar with the language. Christ died for us. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and what? Gave himself for me. That's substitution. The death of Christ was substitution. It was vicarious. He didn't die for his own sin. He didn't die for his own sake. He died as a substitute for others. He stood in the stead of others. So that I can say, and you if you've trusted Christ, my sin he took on his body. He bore it on the cross. Under the wrath of God, he bore my penalty. He paid my debt. That's substitution. Second, the death of Christ is not only a substitution, but a satisfaction. This is what the word, when you run across this in Scripture, propitiation means. It sounds real big. It sounds real technical. It's really not. It just means a satisfaction. A propitiation is a satisfaction. The death of Christ propitiated or satisfied the just demands of God's law. The law demanded that everyone who sins, the soul that sins, it shall die. The death of Christ propitiated or satisfied the just demands of God's law on behalf of all of those for whom he died. So that God, when he sees us in Christ, sees somebody whose debt has been paid and who on, on whom the justice of God makes no claim. Because the justice of God has been satisfied on behalf of that individual. It's propitiation. Let me give you an example. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 and 26. Being justified, that is us, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, the argument of Romans 3 is this. Here's the question. How is it that a righteous and holy God, a just God, can let a guilty sinner go free without impugning His justice? His justice must be satisfied. God will not pervert eternal justice by turning a blind eye to sin and pretending that it never happened. The demands of the law and the demands of justice must be met. The fine has to be paid. God has God's demand for justice has to be satisfied or propitiated. How has God done that? Paul says he demonstrated this propitiation satisfaction publicly by hanging him on a cross so that God can be just and he can justify the ungodly. A sinner can come to him and be acquitted and forgiven of all sins and God's justice is not perverted because on the cross, that is where God says, this is the satisfaction for sin. And on the basis of this, I am satisfied. All of those for whom my son has died, I am satisfied regarding their sin. He has been propitiated. First John 2, 2. He is the propitiation not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. By the whole world, what does John mean there? Does he mean every person who has ever lived without exception? Has the wrath of God against every person who has ever lived been satisfied or propitiated? No, John is using the term world there the same way he does in his gospel. In John chapter 4, he is the savior of the world. 
Behold, John 3, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that the idea there is he takes away, is propitiated, and he died for. He is the Savior of not just Jews, but Gentiles and all of those who are not Jews. He is the satisfaction, not just for the sins of us Jews, but for the sins of all of humanity. Anybody without distinction may come to him and find satisfaction in his death. He is the satisfaction. His death is substitutionary. His death is a satisfaction. And third, his death is a reconciliation or brings reconciliation. Romans 5 verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Through the death of his son, much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 2 Corinthians 5.18, now all these things are from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. In Colossians chapter 2, 13 to 15, this reconciliation is described in other language. Listen to this. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in it. The death of Christ has taken the certificate of decrees which was against a certain people and nailed it to the cross so that God can say, all of those for whom that was done are now reconciled to me. His death was a substitution. His death was a satisfaction. His death was a reconciliation. In his death on the cross, he reconciled men to God. Actually did that work. Now fourth, his death is a ransom. And we use the term uh, for ransom. A lot of times we translate that in Scripture, redemption or redeem. It means to purchase purchase somebody or to pay a price to buy back something, to redeem it. Mark 10.45, Jesus said the Son of Man did not come into the, uh, the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The ransom is paid to God, by God, not to Satan. Jesus didn't pay a ransom to Satan to redeem souls. Jesus paid a ransom to the Father. He bought back from the demands of the Father's justice the people for whom he died. It is a ransom or a redemption. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Titus 2.14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. 1 Peter 1.18 says that we have been redeemed not with perishable things like silver or gold from our feudal way of life inherited from our forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, the spotless blood of Christ. Ephesians 1.17, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So his death is a substitution, a satisfaction, a reconciliation, and a redemption or a ransom price. That is what the death of Christ accomplishes. Now you know, what is it that he did, if anything, on the cross? What did he do? He redeemed, he ransomed, he paid a price, he satisfied the wrath of God, and he stood in as a substitute for the ones for whom he died. So now having answered the question, what is it, if anything, that Christ actually did on the cross, now we have to answer the second question, for whom did he do this? For whom did he do this? Now there are two views, two ways of answering this question historically. First is what we would call an unlimited or universal atonement. The second is what we would call limited atonement or particular redemption. One is universal and unlimited, the other limited and particular. Those are the two ways of answering that question. Now, for the record, I do not like any of those terms because I don't think they're helpful, I don't think they're specific enough, and I don't think they're accurate enough. Let me tell you why. Those who believe in an unlimited or universal atonement would say that they don't limit the atonement at all in any way. That's not true. 
I don't think that anybody limits the atonement as much as the person who says they believe in an unlimited atonement. And I'll tell you why in a second. It sounds Orwellian, but it's true, and you're going to see why in a minute. On the other side, those who believe in what is called limited atonement, I prefer the term particular redemption, because that's really what we're talking about. We are talking about a redemption that is specific, particular, and infinitely effective. So those are the two ways of answering the question. Did Jesus die for everybody or specifically for one group of people? Let's talk about, first of all, unlimited atonement. Unlimited atonement. Here's the view. Jesus, when he died on the cross, paid the price for all men who have ever lived. When he died on the cross, he actually paid the sin debt and the price, even for the Old Testament wicked, the Amorite high priests, the Canaanites, Pharaoh, everybody who died and perished in the Old Covenant and Old Testament. And he died for the sins, the full sin debt of every man, woman, and child who has ever lived or ever will live. So you take all of the cumulative debt of every living and and now dead human being, every person who will ever be conceived and live in this world, take all of that sin debt. All of that was put on Christ and he paid that full payment. So it is unlimited in its scope. He died for everyone equally. But he died for everyone potentially. And this is the key word, potentially. You see, because that payment is not actually applied to the sinner until the sinner believes. So whether or not that payment is effective depends on the will or the action or the belief of the sinner. It's there paid potentially. Not actually, potentially. It's there if you want it. But if you want it, you've got to come and take it. You come and take it, it's yours. It's not applied to you by itself. You have to come and, as it were, draw money out of the atonement bank to cover your sins. That's the first view. Now, by that view, that means that hell is filled with people whose full sin debt has been paid. Hell is full of people whose sins have been completely paid for, completely atoned for on the cross. The second view is what we would call limited atonement. Limited atonement says that Jesus did not come to make a full payment, a full atonement, and pay the full price for every sin of every person who has ever lived, but he came into the world to do what the Father had given him to do, and that is to save the sheep that the Father had given to him. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. They will behold me. They will believe. I will give them eternal life. I will lose none. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my Father's hands because the Son has come to do what the Father gave Him to do, and that is to redeem the group of people that the Father gave to the Son in eternity past. That is the doctrine of limited atonement. Limited atonement says that the work of Christ on the cross is not for everybody equally. It is for a specific group of people to actually accomplish and do a certain thing. Unlimited atonement says it doesn't actually accomplish and do anything specifically. It just makes salvation possible. Makes all men savable. And limited atonement says it doesn't make all men savable. It actually saves some men. So unlimited and limited. You got those two in your mind? Jesus died for all men equally. Jesus died for, specifically, we would say, His elect. His sheep, His bride, those whom the Father has given to the Son. Those are the ones whom Jesus died for. Now, I told you last week that John 10 has bearing upon this question. I want you to look at John 10. Your Bibles are open there. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for what? The sheep. That's right, the sheep. 
Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own. There are some who belong to him, and my own know me. There are some who do not belong to him. I know my own, my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He has other sheep which are not of this fold. He's going to lay down, he laid down his life for them too. He's going to gather all of them together. Verse 16, he lays his life down on his own initiative. It's a voluntary sacrifice. He has done this. Now, is everybody one of his sheep? Everybody in the world. Is everybody one of his sheep? Look at verse 26. Jesus said to the Pharisees, the unbelieving Pharisees, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Now I ask you this question. If Jesus died for his sheep and the Pharisees are not of his sheep, did Jesus die for those Pharisees? Did he pay the full sin debt for those Pharisees who would hang him on a cross and kill him and reject him and perish everlastingly? If Jesus died for his sheep, not everybody is of his sheep. There are some who are of his sheep, and he describes them in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Are all men his sheep? Not all men are. These Pharisees were not. Jesus said, that's why you don't believe. You're not of my sheep. If you were of my sheep, you would hear me. You would believe me. I would give you eternal life, and you would be eternally secure. But you don't belong to me because the Father has not given you to me. I die, I do something on behalf of my sheep. This is what I've done for my sheep. Now, do you notice what Jesus does not say here? He does not say this to the Pharisees. Look, I'm going to lay down my life for you, to save you, to redeem you. I'm going to pay the full sin price for you. Won't you accept me into your heart? Sounds kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? It sounds ridiculous when you try and put that language into John 10, yet that's the gospel presentation of modern evangelicalism. He's paid the full sin price for everybody. Just accept him into your heart. Jesus comes to you hat in hand. Please acknowledge what I have done for you. That's not the New Testament gospel. The New Testament gospel is that God has purchased the sin price of all whom the Father has given to him. You will find, if you are an unbeliever, you will find that your debt is paid if you will believe on him. If you do not believe on him, you have nobody to blame for your damnation but yourself because you rejected him. Viewed from the perspective of human responsibility, your rejection of him is due to your love for darkness. Viewed from the perspective of divine sovereignty, your rejection of him is due to the fact that you're not his sheep. And we hold on to both of those things. In the analogy of John 10, try and take the idea of universal atonement and just plug it into John 10 to see if it works. You make a dog's breakfast out of the whole thing. The analogy doesn't make, make sense. Because then Jesus would have to be saying, all the sheep in the whole world are mine. I'm going to lay down my life for all of them. I'm going to call, and most of those that belong to me will perish everlastingly because they're not going to come, and they're not going to believe. But I have come, and I have done all of this for everybody indiscriminately. Is that what John 10 is teaching? No, John 10 says, there is a group in humanity that has been given to me by my Father. I am coming to call them, to save them, and to redeem them, and I will lay down my life for them. In the analogy of John 10, who is it that believes upon the Son? His sheep. Who is it that is given by the Father to the Son? His sheep. Who is it that is saved? His sheep. Who is it that gets abundant life? His sheep. Who is it that he gives pasture to? His sheep. Who is it that hears him? His sheep. Who is it that comes out of humanity and is drawn to him? His sheep. Who is it that he dies for? Everybody. What? Does that make sense to you? That doesn't even fit the analogy. Did Jesus do something for those who were his that he did not do for everybody else? And the answer to that is yes. He did. He came to redeem and to save and to pay the full sin price as a substitute for all of those whom the Father had given to him. Jesus said, these are mine. I know them. They know me. They will never perish. I will lay down my life for them. And I will bear their sin. 
I will stand as their substitute. I will pay their debt. I will suffer their wrath. I will do everything on their behalf so that my obedience becomes theirs and their sin becomes mine. And he stood in the place, not of all men, but of those whom the Father has given to him because that's what he came to do. The Father's will. To die and to lay down his life on behalf of the sheep. And you say, Jim, sounds to me like you believe in limited atonement. You're right, I do. In fact, I would be willing to say this. Everybody believes in limited atonement. Everybody does. The only person who truly believes that the atonement is unlimited in every way is the person who believes that all men are going to heaven because all men have had their sins paid for and the justice of God has been satisfied on behalf of all men so all people go to heaven. So listen, if you believe that there is a hell and you believe that people go there and you believe that people will suffer there eternally, then you believe in a limited atonement. Everybody limits the atonement. Whether you are over this side on the unlimited atonement, what we would call an Arminian, or whether you are a Calvinist and believe in particular redemption or limited atonement, everybody limits the atonement in some way. Those who believe that Christ died for all men indiscriminately and equally limit the power and effectiveness of the atonement. Because in their theology, the atonement doesn't actually save anyone. Is anybody's salvation guaranteed by what Christ did, according to this camp? They would say no. Nobody's salvation is guaranteed. Is anybody's sin debt actually fully paid? Is their sin before God and His bar of justice completely satisfied? They would have to say no. Does this death for everyone indiscriminately secure infallibly, so that it cannot be otherwise, secure infallibly the salvation of all of those for whom it was made? The Arminian, the unlimited person, would have to say no. In fact, Jesus actually paid the full sin price for multitudes, millions of people who will perish. Most of those for whom he died over here in this camp are going to perish everlastingly. They limit the effect of the atonement. It was made for all men, but it doesn't actually specifically save anyone. The Calvinist would limit the scope of the atonement and say Jesus didn't die for all men. He died for a specific people. But listen, it is unlimited in its power. It does exactly what God sent it to do. It propitiates, it substitutes, it saves, it reconciles, it redeems, it pays the sin debt, it does everything that the Father sent it to do. It is unlimited in its power, though it is limited in its scope. You could liken it to a bridge. For the Arminian or the unlimited atonement guys, the bridge is very wide and it goes halfway across the river. For the Calvinist, the bridge is very narrow, but it goes all the way across the river. Now, which bridge do you want to drive on? The one that is narrow and goes all the way across the river and does what God sent it to do, or the bridge that is wide enough for everybody but doesn't actually do anything? I would take the bridge that is specific and narrow, but one that saves infallibly. That's what I need. I need an atonement, not that makes me savable, but that saves me, that secures me, that guarantees my salvation infallibly, without fail. It cannot fail. Because Jesus, the one who made it, cannot fail. So I do believe in limited atonement. Everybody does, unless you're a universalist and you believe everybody's going to heaven. You either limit the power of the atonement or you limit the scope of the atonement. But you're going to limit the atonement. How do we know this? Because are all men saved? No, they are not. That means that the atonement of Christ is not applied equally to all men. So what is it that limits the atonement? The Arminian says it is the sinner that limits the atonement by his response, by his will, by his embrace or acknowledgement of what Christ has done. The Calvinist says it's not the sinner that limits the atonement. It is God in his intention with the atonement that limits it. It is God who sent the Son to do what the Son came to do, and that intention is fulfilled fully. So everybody believes in a limited atonement. You either limit the power of the atonement or you limit the extent. 
or sorry, you limit the scope of the atonement. Yeah, you limit the scope of the atonement or you limit the extent of the atonement. Look at this from the perspective of God's justice for just a second. This is where we, this is where we gotta make all of our theological chickens come out of little holes and play with each other. Let's talk about God's justice for just a second. Did Jesus pay the full sin price for all of those who are in hell? If so, then I ask you this, why are they in hell? What are they suffering for? Maybe I say, well, they're suffering because they didn't believe. Is unbelief a sin? Yeah. Did Jesus pay for that sin? Yeah. Then why are they in hell? What are they suffering for? Scripture says they are paying the price or suffering the wrath of God for their deeds. Revelation 20. They are judged because they are liars and thieves and blasphemers and effeminate and adulterers and homosexuals and sexually promiscuous and immoral. And because they are gossips and disobedient to parents and slanderers and revilers and idolaters, those are the sins for which the ungodly are punished. Now, if the wicked are punished for their deeds and Jesus paid for their deeds, then you have two people paying the one price. Is that just? If God's justice has been satisfied by what His Son did, then the debt has been paid and the wicked must go free. That's the justice of God. If God's justice has been satisfied, then the wicked man must go free. The only way the wicked can be punished for his sin if is the punishment for his sin has not been paid yet, if the debt has not been paid. Think of it this way. Can Pharaoh today stand in hell and say, I have been crucified with Christ. My debt has been paid. The demands of God's justice upon me for my wickedness and my rebellion have been met. I, by the death of His Son, have been reconciled to God. The the certificate of hostility which was between He and I has been removed. The enmity has been removed. The demands of eternal justice upon me for my sin have been satisfied once and forever. Can Pharaoh say that? He cannot say that. Why? Because the demands of God's justice upon Pharaoh have not been met. That is why Pharaoh is in hell. He pays for his sins. He needed a substitute. You and I need a substitute. And I will go to heaven and I will be righteous for all of eternity, not because I have paid in purgatory or in this life for my own sins, but because somebody else has borne my sin. He was my substitute. He was my propitiation or my satisfaction. He is my reconciliation. He is my ransom. He is my redemption. It is all him and his payment for me. Are you and I to say that God has done the same thing for all of those who are in hell as he did for all of those who are in heaven? Did God do something for Moses that he didn't do for Pharaoh? Or did he do the same thing for Moses and for Pharaoh, for Judas and for Peter, for me and for the countless multitudes in hell? Did he die for me in the same way that he died for everybody else in the whole world? Or did the Son of God do something for me because I belong to him? What's the central feature of the analogy of John 10? There are sheep which belong to him. And all of John 10 is about this. Here is what I do for my sheep. I give them eternal life. I give them pasture. I call them. I bring them to myself. I secure them. I redeem them. I give my life for them. It is a specific and it is a particular redemption that Christ has wrought on the cross because it is substitution and because it is a satisfaction. Charles Spurgeon, in preaching on the subject of the, of the uh, particular redemption, said this to a group of Arminians in his audience. Spurgeon said, Now who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why you? You say that Christ did not die so as to infallibly secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon when you say we limit Christ's death. We say, no, my dear sir, it is you that do it. 
We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You are welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. End quote. I would agree with that. Give me a Christ and an atonement that pays my price, not gives me a potential payment. Give me an atonement that saves me and secures me and redeems me and satisfies all the demands of God's justice on my behalf. Not an atonement that simply makes me savable and then leaves it up to me to pull myself by my own bootstraps out of the hole I've created. Give me a salvation that actually redeems. Not an atonement that does nothing and guarantees nothing. So who is it that limits the atonement? The Calvinist or the Arminian? I would argue that Arminian atonement, limited atonement, is unlimited atonement, what's falsely called unlimited atonement, is more limited than limited atonement. Why? Because this is just a potential payment doesn't actually do anything. They limit, they neuter the power of the atonement, the effectiveness of the atonement. Does this atonement actually guarantee anything? Nothing at all. Whereas Scripture teaches that the atonement of Christ, what He did on the cross, guarantees something. It actually pays a sin debt and a price. Now there are a couple of objections to this doctrine, what I would call particular redemption that some may raise. Some may say, you know what, really that minimizes the value of the death of Christ, that he only died for a few people instead of everybody. It minimizes the value of what he did. No, it does not. It does not minimize the value of it whatsoever because I'll tell you what, even if Christ had only died to save me, one man, one man, and left everybody else to perish in their sins, he would not have had to suffer any less than he did. Because my sin debt was an infinite sin debt. That's the reality of it. The death that he died was of infinite value. It's not limited in its value. It is infinitely valuable. And it actually does what he said it, what he said it would do. Some people would say that if the death of Christ or the, uh, the doctrine of particular redemption or limited atonement sort of limits or casts in a bad light the love of God. It's not so. Listen, the love of God is not measured by the scope of the atonement and God's intention in the atonement. The two are connected in the sense that the love of God prompted him to send his son to die for sinners. That's true. But listen, God's love, even for the non-elect and those whom were not, whose sin Christ did not carry away in atonement, the love of God for them is far greater than anything you and I can imagine, anything you and I have ever experienced. But Christ did do something for those who belong to Him that He did not do for the others. It has nothing to do with the love of God whatsoever. God loves all men. God loves all of His creatures. God loves every man who has ever lived. But listen, God loves His bride, the church, with a particular, redeeming, special, valuable love that is not shared by those who do not belong to Him. Because some people are His sheep. And He has a special love for those who are His. That's taught in Scripture. Special love. God discriminates in His love. But the scope of the atonement is not a measure of the love of Christ. So what is it that Christ came to do? And did He do it? If He came to infallibly guarantee and secure the salvation of all of those for whom He died, then did He do it? He did it. If he came and tried to save everybody, then did he do what he came to do? Nope. He's going to be largely disappointed because millions will perish. And he's quite a failure. He's quite a failure. If he came to save everybody, he has not done a very good job of it. But I believe that he did not come to save everybody. He wasn't even trying to save everybody. He came to do what the Father gave him to do. That is to redeem those that the Father gave to the Son. John 6, John 10. The Father is given to them. I know them. They know me. Just like I know the Father and the Father knows me. I call them by their name. They come to me. They are mine. They belong to me. You do not belong to me. These belong to me. And I will lay down my life for my sheep. 
That's particular redemption. I will lay down my life for my sheep. He dies as a substitute, as a satisfaction, to bring reconciliation and to pay a ransom or redemption price. That is a glorious, glorious view of the atonement. And you think about that, friends. Listen, you will stand in awe and amazement at what he has done. There's nothing about a potential redemption or a potential payment that causes me any awe at all, but that he would bear my sin, not potentially, but actually. That, that is a glorious truth. And that's particular redemption. And that answers the question, for whom did Christ die? All men or some men? I believe it was some men. I believe it was some men. He actually bore their sins in his own body on the tree. Let's pray together. Father, these are very heavy and weighty things that we are discussing and thinking about. They are your ways, and your ways are beyond what we can understand. We, we don't know how all of that might, that might work out, but we believe on the testimony of Scripture that what your Word says is true. That your Son came here to die for those that you gave to Him before the foundation of the world. And we are grateful for that sacrifice of Christ. And we do pray that many, many who sit and hear these words who have never trusted Christ for salvation may find redemption in that atonement and may find a payment for their sin there as well. That you, by your grace, would be pleased to draw men and women to Christ, that you might be glorified and that the Lamb might receive the full reward for His suffering. That you would be pleased to draw those who belong to you, because we know we have the confidence in Scripture that you will lose none. You will infallibly save all of those whom you came to save. We thank you for that atonement. It is glorious, it is rich, it is true. And we are grateful, our God, that by your grace and your grace alone, we have found a measure of that atonement and that it covers our sin as well. Thank you, O gracious God, for what you have done. We lift our hearts and our eyes to you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.